Welcome, welcome, welcome to the John of All Trades Podcast, episode 91. I'm your host, John X. Thank you for joining us. Glad to have you back once again. And this week, we're talking about three of everyone's favorite things. We're talking about pot, we're talking about comedy, and we're talking about principles of good government and civic engagement at the city level. Right? Those are everyone's three favorite things. One out of three? Two out of three? Hopefully, we're checking at least one box, but... You don't want to miss this week's episode, and presumably you're not because you're already listening. The guest is Kayvon Kalatbari. Now, Kayvon is an entrepreneur here in Denver, and he's got like 15 businesses by his own admission. In this episode, he says, I think I've got 15 going right now. And some you know. Sexy Pizza. Sex Pot Comedy. Denver Relief. Denver Relief Consulting. Birdie Magazine. If you've seen Birdie around, you need to pick up a copy because there's great stuff in there. Just wonderful essays, terrific photography. It's a great, great publication. And then there's like 10 more behind that. And we spend a lot of time in this episode talking about both why he supports artists, how he got involved in promoting comedy, how he got involved in sexy pizza despite never having run a restaurant before, and why he quit his electrical engineering job. That's right. Kayvon was an electrical engineer. I didn't know that. And I'm always amazed and always sort of empowered and energized by folks who've gone out on their own. I mean, that's what I've done. I just recently passed the one-year anniversary of Deft Communications. That was on April 8th, which also coincidentally was Rex Manning Day. So sometimes the universe throws you a bone, and it's all good. I love Rex Manning Day. I love Empire Records. And as I was driving over here, I'm actually recording this in the car at the moment. That's a little piece of info you probably didn't know, but that you don't get anywhere else. And that song, Never Been a Girl Like You Before by Edwin Collins came on. So I have sort of Empire Records on the brain, which is why I bring this up. But the point is, I've been in business now for a year. Kayvon's been doing this for like eight years. Been working 80, 90 hours a week for the last eight years chasing his dream and doing great things. So what can you expect in this week's episode? We talk about weed. We talk about dispensaries. We talk about what it's like to work in this industry, how it's changed, what to expect from it going forward. We also talk about support for the arts, comedy, art, birdie magazine, sex pot comedy. It's amazing that we live in a city with such a great backbone supporting all these local artists. And by Kayvon's own admission, he's taken a loss on this. Sex pot comedy doesn't make money. That's something important to know. When you see these things and you see people who are sponsored and you go, wow, look at that. They got sponsorship. Well, maybe not everyone's making as much money as you thought they were. That's generally the case with stuff like this, especially at the grassroots level. And then most interesting to me, Kayvon ran for Denver City Council in 2015. I voted for him. I don't mind telling you that because I liked his entrepreneurial approach. I liked his resume. I liked everything that he did. And so I go, hell yeah, I'll vote for Kayvon. And we spend a lot of time talking about the prison system. We talk about needing to reform our laws, reforming our drug laws, and the opportunities that he saw by running for city council, the things he wanted to address. So if you're engaged in the city or you're engaged in having a better community, no matter where you live, this is an interesting conversation and one worth having. So I'm enormously proud of this episode and I can't wait to bring it to you. First, a couple of things. I'd like to pay some love to my sponsor, Four Degrees, the number four, D-E-G-R-E dot E-S. If you are running an online campaign, 
If you are trying to reach someone via social media, Four Degrees is the first call you need to make, and I guarantee you it will probably be your last because they do a great, great job of reaching the consumer or the constituent or whoever you need to reach and doing it in a very cost-effective fashion. I can't speak highly enough of them because they provide tech support for John of All Trades. They optimize us. They've helped us grow. And I'm just so proud that they're the sponsor of the John of All Trades podcast. So hit them up. Four Degrees, the number four, D-E-G-R-E dot E-S. I'd also like to pay some love to Deft Communications. That's my company. Been in business for over a year now. We have three pillars of our business, training, content, and engagement. So if you need media, presentation, or corporate training, leadership training, whatever it is, we got you covered there. Content, we can develop a whole slate and a whole suite of materials for you. Press releases, newsletter templates, elevator pitch, get your messaging dialed in, social media content, whatever you need, Deft Communications can provide it. And then engagement. How are you reaching the people that need to hear you? So it's kind of hand-in-hand with four degrees in a lot of ways. So just hit us up on the web, deftcom.us. That's D-E-F-T-C-O-M dot U-S. So with that out of the way, let's get to this week. It's episode 91. Our guest is Kayvon Kalatbari. He is a former candidate for city council in Denver. He's also the founder of Sexpot Comedy, Birdie Magazine, Denver Relief, Denver Relief Consulting, and like 10 more. So Visit the blog, johnofalltrades.us, J-O-N of alltrades.us, and you'll get a whole list of links to the things that Kayvon's involved with, so be sure to check him out in all those places. Episode 91, Kayvon Kalatbari, starts right now. It's a seven-day week enterprise around here, isn't it? Always. Eight days if I can fit them in. <laughs> right. Have you seen Men in Black? You should get on that crazy time schedule that they have where it's like 47 hour days. <laughs> Sounds wonderful. <laughs> I wish. Yeah. If I could still do that and get by with sleeping five hours a night, I'd, I'd certainly do so. Yeah, I got gotcha. you. So we're sitting here in your office here at Denver Relief Consulting, which you have one of the best addresses ever. It's one Broadway. One Broadway. It's the uh, the epicenter of Denver, the zero zero block. Yeah, it's it's the Mecca. Yeah, so to have uh, Denver Relief, which is the oldest dispensary in Denver, uh, second oldest in Colorado, to be situated at that zero zero block is uh, it's pretty cool. Yeah, and what's funny is Jake Brown helped me set this up with you, and I was looking to talk to a dispensary owner, but you do far more than that. And if you ever have had the pleasure of email of corresponding with you via email, you'll notice the bottom it's just packed with logos and all sorts of like everything that you're involved in. How much of that is run out of this office? Do you pretty much do it all from here? Yeah, most of it. You know, I think we give the illusion that we're a pretty large enterprise uh, right. overall, but uh, we get a lot done with a little. You know, Sexy Pizza uh, doesn't really have an office space. Birdie doesn't really have an office space. Sexpot right. Comedy doesn't either. So um, we definitely share resources a lot around these offices, and it's kind of a hub for all the businesses and a lot of the advocacy work that we do. Okay, so you named a few of them right there. I, how many different things are you involved in? Hmm. You know, if Denver Relief and Denver Relief Consulting are probably my two main focuses right now. I hope to shift that more to Sexpot and Birdie here shortly. But those are those and Sexy Pizza, so those five are really my kind of direct babies. Uh, but there's another 10 uh, businesses that uh, we've helped support along the way, whether financially or to get integrated in the cannabis industry or to find other resources um, and, and in return take an equity for them. So probably about 15 total. Okay, wow. that's. I mean, that's a lot to oversee, though. How did you come to found or start or get involved in all these different types of businesses. I, I mean, that's, I would call that atypical 
of people. You know what I mean? Like consultants tend to focus in, in one lane. How did you come to find yourself so diversified? I think it kind of happened by accident. <laughs> All of my projects, uh, whether they be in advocacy or in business, have always kind of been other people's passions, other people's projects that right. they wanted to pursue, but that they didn't they didn't have the business acumen or the the means financially to get it done. Um, so for me to step in and kind of help manage resources and manage that process um, has kind of been my role. And I kind of consider myself a resource manager for all of these. But uh, really, you know, there's a long story behind each of them, but they all just became very synergistic with each other. Um, comedy, cannabis, right. pizza, <laughs> art. Oh, um, great stuff. They all fit in pretty well together. So it was, it was just an evolution of me kind of getting tired of the, the corporate job that I was in prior to this, uh, doing electrical engineering uh, with the firm here really? in Denver. Yeah, that's what, that's what moved me out to Denver initially. Uh, wow. Been here for about 11 years. It'd be 12 years in August. Um, and it was a ME group. It was an engineering firm that was based out of Lincoln, Nebraska, where I'm from, that transferred me here wow. and uh, helped start that office. And, and after a couple of years in that, I just I couldn't do it anymore. <laughs> uh, believe me, I know what it's like to uh, look at your corporate job and go, I can't do this anymore. And I'm sure I, I'm sure it was a great job. Probably paid well. Probably. Yeah, it, it paid well. I had uh, a lot of freedom in the hours I worked. I probably accomplished twice twice as much as the, a, lot, a lot of the other folks in the office uh, in half the time. Right. Uh, great benefits, health, dental, vision, retirement plan, stock in the company. Uh, pretty much had everything I could want. Uh, had a had a lady that I was living with and a house that I own that I was destined to get married to. Um, right. But all of that just didn't feel right. I was about 20 or 30 pounds heavier than I am now. Huh. And uh, one day woke up. I remember walk, going up the elevator. I walked to work every day and I had my earbuds in. It was probably the same song playing for the third day in a row as I was going up that <laughs> elevator. And I right. started to feel like a robot. <laughs> Couldn't do it anymore. Right. All of a sudden you go... Oh, God, 40 more years of this shit, right? Yeah, I sat down at my uh, desk that morning not knowing I was going to do it that morning and wrote my two weeks notice. And <laughs> uh, my boss came over to me immediately after he got it and uh, said, you can go. <laughs> so, so 15 minutes after I didn't know I was going to do that, I, I was out of a job and, and started down my entrepreneurial path that started with uh, Sexy Pizza. Wow. Sexy Pizza was the first. That was uh, eight years ago in uh, April. Okay. The, the thing I love about Sexy Pizza is – the model is slightly different where a portion of, of your pizzas go to what community involvement, right? Yeah. So, uh, sexy pizza was started with two partners uh, that aren't part of it anymore. Um, but they were a part of safer, safer alternative for enjoyable recreation, which was oh, yeah. the cannabis advocacy group led by Mason Tavert. Uh, that was what got me into cannabis advocacy here in Denver about 11 years ago. Okay. And when that, uh, city initiative passed I 100 and we legalized here in Denver, uh, me and, uh, the assistant director, and the only employee that Safer had, uh, for whatever reason, they're from uh, Huntington, Long Island, uh, wanted to start a pizzeria. <laughs> and uh, they always had this idea to name it Sexy Pizza uh, simply for uh, driving curiosity, that if uh, people are curious enough to come in and the, the food is all right and good enough sure. uh, to, to make them happy, that they would come back. And, and that's worked out. But, yeah, we had never uh, owned a restaurant, run a restaurant, had never owned a business, yeah. uh, had never made pizza. Uh, so this is all a new venture for us. But one that uh, exhausted my savings uh, that I had made at that engineering firm. Right. Um, I started uh, homeless at Sexy Pizza uh, <laughs> for nine months. I lived in a tent in the backyard of a house that I rented out. Wow. And uh, lived on a buddy's floor for another six uh, during the first nine months of Sexy just because I had spent all my money and had no income because we were starting fresh. <laughs> wow. And, man, you hear that about restaurants. But that – I haven't talked to a restaurant owner in a while. And that, to me, is – 
you know, people think, oh, restaurants, like, they, they think it's very glamorous, you know, like, we're going to open, we're going to have a big splash, and then people will come in, and then we're riding high, right? That's so the opposite of the way it works, though. Yeah, and that, that was one of the problems with my two initial partners was after about 18 months to two years, they thought they would be balling, <laughs> uh, for lack of a better term. And that just wasn't the case. You know, this is a startup. And as we know, most startups, yeah. um, it takes about two years, especially restaurants, to really get traction, to get that visibility. And uh, they walked off. And I, I had to, to work on finding a new partner to wow. come in and, and generally manage. But I guess yeah, back to your uh, question about the or the pies, your comment about the pies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, because of that advocacy route, uh, that's why we... We, we started donating is, is really more to drug advocacy groups. Okay. Um, but as we started kind of tearing that down that cannabis prohibition wall here in Colorado, we started to get into some of the other issues that were important to us, like the Colorado Youth Symphony Orchestra, which I sit on the board of directors of, and uh, and a veterans group, uh, Freedom Service Dogs. Uh, so trying to get into other things that are important to Denver, important to the people that own Sexy. That's awesome, man. Like, And, and that's, I don't know, to me that's just such a cool way of doing business, where it's built into the cost of sort of doing business, right? Does that make your guys' pies a little bit more expensive, or is that sort of baked into how you do it? Pardon the pun. Yeah, you know, I I, I would say that, no, uh, we don't mark it up for that dollar. I think we consider more those donations a marketing cost, sure. uh, similar to what we do with Sexbot Comedy. Uh, Denver Leaf and Sexy Pizza haven't really engaged in print advertising in more than three years, and it's because we've been focusing on sponsoring Birdie or sponsoring comedy shows or music right. shows or art projects around Denver, um, engaging in things that the community around our businesses really appreciates us uh, getting involved sure. in, uh, they appreciate participating in. Um, so we found that we can target the people that come into our businesses uh, with higher efficiency and with less money right. um, sponsoring things that they love as opposed to print ad in Westward or something like that. Right. No, that makes sense. And, you know, for me, it's part of a value proposition where if you know that your the part of your money is going towards community good, then that, that compels you to come in as well, I'm sure, once people know about it, right? Yeah, that alone, you know, I, it, it's a wonderful marketing opportunity. And I, I see that, that value a lot in the cannabis industry because I think a lot of people still harbor the stereotype that uh, us uh, operators in this industry are a little bit less than ethical or mm. uh, less than ideal, but that's that's really not the case. And I think the ones that are good, that are good stewards of this industry and of our community, do see an opportunity in that and, and do everything that they can to try to shine a positive light on the cannabis industry to say we're, we're regular people running these businesses, we're regular people consuming cannabis, we're, we're no different. We are a, a broad range of uh, who we are in Denver. So uh, I, I think that more people are getting in line with that. And there's actually a national uh, organization that's really pushing uh, for kind of the recreation of the perception of the cannabis business owner and, and trying to engage them uh, in community integration, even if it's through making them feel bad for not doing so <laughs> and shaming them into it. Well, sure. When I worked in corporate, one of our things was you're only ever as good as your worst operator. And so, you know, people may not be necessarily familiar with, you know, individual cannabis shops, but if they hear something bad, then the rest of the industry kind of gets painted with that brush. Has that happened in your experience? Oh, yeah, definitely. That's been since day one. You know, being the oldest and having to fight off uh, the old delivery services and people selling cannabis out of dorm rooms and out of, <laughs> uh, you know, really illegal operations, um, those really didn't get shut down until a couple of years ago when reg reg regulation came about. And, you know, uh, dealing with it in other states, it's the same thing. Colorado's a little different. California, some of the western states, because they started from more of this underground mentality, this this underground perspective, whereas in new states like Illinois, where we're at, um, I mean, you need, you know, tens of millions of dollars to get into the industry 
to begin with, so you don't right. have that element involved. But yeah, here in the West, there's definitely a, a huge issue with that, and a lot of it's perpetuated by the media um, right. because they they don't necessarily find the the best stories, the most progressive stories in the cannabis industry. They stick to what's going to be sensational on television. <laughs> right? Yeah. What's what's going to fill space between advertisements? Exactly. You mentioned to me one thing I want to come back to is. You get involved in all these ventures because you want to work with people who have vision, but maybe not necessarily the business acumen or the resources to accomplish that. Is that right? Yeah, I'd say so. You know, and it's it's not necessarily a pursuit of mine, um, but I think that just because of the creative people I surround myself with, that there's a lot of I- ideas right. uh, in the ether, and I, I think it's just a matter of vetting those and and finding people that are truly committed uh, to that process. That's when I find my in, uh, and if I can understand it well enough right. uh, to to understand the opportunity. Opportunity, um, then it, then maybe it's worth pursuing. Yeah, no, and that makes sense to me. My question is, how did you come to accumulate business acumen as an electrical engineer? You know what I mean? Because it took me a long time to accumulate a lot of business acumen in what I do because I was a speech major. And so I could analyze the shit out of a TV show or a media text for you. But pairing that skill set with sort of business knowledge took me some time to cultivate. How did you come to cultivate it? You know, I don't, I don't know that I still have a lot of uh, business acumen. I think it's it's something I, I learn uh, every I, day. I, I think your resume would would <laughs> claim otherwise on that one. In accomplishments, yes, but I think that's more a testament to the folks I've put around me okay. um, than, than myself in general. You know, again, I'm a resource manager, and I may may not lack all – or I may not have all the understanding in, you know, reading uh, the, these – PNLs and balance sheets and, and understanding them impeccably and the sure. the trends that you see in them, but uh, really it's it's just that entrepreneurial spirit. It's it's this desire to to live my own life, to be my own boss, and that I, that's been instilled in me uh, since I was very young. I had parents that, although they weren't entrepreneurs, I think I, I saw their money troubles and I saw how mm-hmm. they were kind of creative uh, with making money, and that fed into me starting to sell fake Rolexes and <laughs> and tag hewers and Oakleys on eBay before they were cracking down on that, and I've uh, sold cannabis since I was 15. So wow. I think just like the basics of making money and understanding a, a budget, uh, something I, I learned in a less than ideal way, but at a very young age. And the, I've lived on my own since I was 16. So that kind of uh, forced me into making sure that I had enough money to live and sustain. Wow. And um, it, just, it just kind of set that in me. So I'm very shrewd, I guess. I'm very, uh, um, you know, I'm a minimalist when it comes to possessions. I don't spend a lot of money. Okay. And I think just because of that fact, I'm in a better position than a lot of folks because I sure I don't you know I don't have that desire to spend like a lot of Americans do <laughs> right you're yeah you're not uh, you're not surrounding yourself with with possessions and you know status symbols and that kind of thing yeah and I you know I'll run a car into the ground uh, sure yeah. uh, my house is full of half projects uh, everything in my home I I found or was left there by prior roommates or whatever <laughs> it's uh, right. you know, if it'll get me by it's good enough for me yeah no that that makes perfect sense So you mentioned that you were selling cannabis when you were a teenager, and then you came back around to the industry. Have you always been interested in that sort of as a business or as as a user? How did you you come to be involved in that? Yeah, you know, I... I started using cannabis when I was 15, kind of, I think, as an escape, like a lot of kids do. Of course. But what I did find is that it helped me with some of the things that were bothering me in school, um, with having parents that uh, divorced when I was 10 and being at home yeah. uh, with my brother alone quite a bit and watching him to, you know, just working all the time. Younger uh, brother? Yeah, yeah, five years younger, okay. uh, Hassan. He's one of the managers out at our grow. But I, I, th- I think just having the stress that was put on me when I was young, the inability to sleep, uh, being so busy that I forgot to 
heat sometimes dealing with my depression. Um, yeah. Then when I started using cannabis and using it responsibly, I, I, I understood how these benefited me. And when I could go to school and actually pay attention or uh, focus on my homework, um, that was different than where it was where I was before uh, consuming cannabis. So I think just understanding, first of all, the fact that it didn't do all these bad things that people maybe said it was going to right. do uh, when I used it was that first step. And then when I came out to Denver, uh, we got involved with Safer, my brother and I. Uh, he lived out here with me um, because we were just looking for uh, someone to volunteer with. And it didn't yeah. have to be cannabis. We looked at Habitat for Humanity and, and all these different ways to get engaged, not for any business desire, but just to, to be in, a part of something. We didn't know anybody out here and sure. uh, found that group uh, safer uh, that had passed initiatives on CU CSU campuses we're coming down to Denver to do the same here and went down and met them and, and it just snowballed and uh, I really appreciated uh, their perspective on why they were involved in this from a social perspective and throwing 800,000 people in jail every year for simple cannabis possession did you but say 800,000 that's how many the United States throws in jail every year for simple cannabis possession <laughs> and nothing else small amounts um, so to think about the barriers that that creates to people's lives with regard to maintaining custody of their children or a yeah. roof over their head or a job or getting a college scholarship um, for no reason, right. um, for using a substance that's safer than alcohol. And it, it just really opened my eyes to kind of the discrepancy that existed in a lot of the narrative around cannabis and alcohol and things like that. So yeah. got more involved in that. And then when uh, President Obama um, was uh, running for his first uh, um, term, uh, he had said all, all throughout it that he wasn't going to use federal resources to go after these state-compliant cannabis businesses. So when he got elected, there was enough vague language in the Colorado Amendment <laughs> 20 uh, to read into these corporate enterprises, which is when you saw the, the green rush occur here in Colorado. So we started Denver Leaf with $4,000 and half a pound of cannabis and, <laughs> and really winged it. But it was always from day one, we have it on our initial meeting agenda, uh, that our, our desire was to get in this industry, yes, to make money, but two, to change the perception of the cannabis user and to integrate into our communities and to be something different than, than what you saw on, on TV and, and in people's talking points. Do you think the industry and you in particular have been successful in evolving some of those perceptions? Yeah, definitely. And it is a team effort. Um, you know, there's a lot of different scales. When you think of like a live well here in Colorado, um, where they have almost 20 stores and are run right. by uh, strictly non-cannabis corporate types, um, all the way down <laughs> to the mom and pop, like a Denver Relief or Legal or or, or some of the other places that are out there. The mom and pops are slowly going away. Um, they're dissolving. They're getting consolidated into these larger shops. But I think all of uh, these places, because Colorado is kind of this focal point, this epicenter of this mm -hmm. movement, um, they understand their obligation uh, to changing that perception. And I think uh, everybody's done it in their own different ways. Um, but collectively, they've I think they've made a pretty powerful statement. Okay. So we're taping this on Leap Day. And the episode that went up last week was with Goldie Soledar, mm -hmm. who does uh, cannabis tours. Yep. City sessions. Yeah, city sessions. Okay. You know her? Yeah, Goldie brings a lot of folks down into Denver Relief. Oh, great. She's great. Okay. We've known her for a while. Yeah, and I adore Goldie. And she was incredibly knowledgeable and, and gave me a lot of insight into regulations and, you know, seed to sale and RFID tags and on and on and on. She said that this year was going to be a big year for the cannabis industry. Would you agree with that? Yeah, you know, I think you look at some of the states that have been kind of uh, chomping at the bit to come online. Uh, Illinois, we're the largest cultivator in Illinois with our, our team, Cresco Labs. Okay. And when you talk about a company uh, doing something to change the perception of cannabis, I mean, they're the version two of that, if Denver Relief's the version one, where okay. uh, they uh, sponsor the Chicago Marathon and we're the first uh, cannabis company to sponsor a national sporting event. Wow. Uh, we just partnered with the James Beard award-winning chef, Mindy Siegel, um, to do something different. If we're going to do edibles that are, uh, you know, we're not going to make them toned towards children. We're not going <laughs> right. to uh, make a, a use awful ingredients. We're going to use some, we're going 
to do something better and elevated. They uh, just uh, coordinated that interview with Jim McMahon um, that occurred in Chicago and, and wow. things like that to try to en- engage you know more of these celebrity types to get in and, and throw their hat in the ring. But yeah, you have states like Illinois and Florida uh, where we just won one of five licenses come on. Uh, New York's coming online. Massachusetts is coming online in a big way. So all those operations, all these states are really pushing forward. Uh, Canada with Trudeau coming on uh, is going to legally right. federal, uh, federally legalize it up there. But then you look at our elections this year. You know, it's a big one presidentially, obviously. Right. A lot of interesting choices to make. Um, but you have uh, Maine and, and Vermont and Michigan and Nevada and Arizona and California all talking recreational legalization. Those are some massive markets. Yeah. And then another, you know, Florida and Missouri and Arkansas talking medical, uh, Ohio talking recreational and medical. Like these are big presidential states as well. Right. Yeah. Swing um, states. So, you know, a lot of it's going to be dictated by what happens this fall. But I think regardless, we're going to have some big wins and, and this is going to continue to push forward in a big way. And I would agree that this is probably one of the biggest years to to not make or break, but, you know, similarly uh, do that to the cannabis industry this year. Yeah, 100 percent. And, you know, locally, one of the things that, that you brought up was some of these mom and pops are going away. I want to say that's not necessarily a bad thing, though. Would you tend to agree? Or is the industry trending in a way? Does it have a value? Is it positive? Is it negative? Are we getting consolidation? As far as trends locally, what's your thoughts on that? I think a lot of the mom and pops getting out are doing so for two reasons. One, it's getting harder to compete. And it's getting harder to compete, one, because that scale is so small. And there's other people that, uh, you know, are dealing... Uh, with massive production facilities that are able to bring their costs down so low that there's just no way a small business can compete. Right. Um, but there's also a lack of business acumen, uh, like I mentioned earlier, with people that, because we came from an underground uh, kind of foundation, um, people that were in this and didn't really have any business being in it. If it was just coming online today, I don't think a lot of the people that own some of these small shops would, would get involved right. um, just because they, they wouldn't be able to compete. I, I think that it's going to come back around similarly to what we've seen with alcohol, where you saw right. a ton of consolidation. Uh, you saw the Coors, the Buds, the PBRs of the world come up. But after a while, I think people start to understand that maybe there's a, a something better out there and, right. and they're willing to pay for something better. Okay. And uh, similar to what we've had in Colorado and California, especially with the microbrew culture, I think we're going to yeah. see that bleed back into the cannabis industry and have these people that have this tremendous business acumen that have work, worked in some of these larger corporate establishments say, you know what? I'm going to do this myself. And right, I'm going to do yeah. it better, and I'm going to I'm going to do it small batch, and I'm going to charge more, and I'm going to create more of an experience and a brand and something unique about it uh, that's going to make people want to pay a little bit more money for that. Right? Yeah. I I want to be like for the connoisseurs, that kind of thing. Exactly. And it's it's taken a while for those connoisseurs to develop. You know, when when you should sure, two, yeah. even two years ago, just go to your dealer and and what you got was what you got. Um, you know, what you got was what you got. It was it was hard <laughs> to develop an opinion on what's good, a contrast <laughs> between what's bad. And now that people have all all this choice and all this selection at their uh, in front of them, it, it's, it's something that they can really uh, dig into and, and form an opinion about, and they're finally starting to do that. Right. What is a, what is a typical snapshot of a customer at Denver Relief, Be, and does one exist? You know, I don't think it does. I, I think uh, the average cu- uh, customer is is everybody. <laughs> um, you know, medically, we have people that have been coming to us for almost seven years now. Sure. Um, so we've got a very loyal following there. And, and I don't know that a lot of dispensaries, because they've changed so many hands and names and locations and all that, have that kind of um, commitment um, that we have on the patient side. On the recreational side, I think we're as diverse as everybody else. Probably half of the people uh, that come in and shop recreationally at Denver Relief are in Colorado. The others are out. Um, but 
internationally. We've probably seen most countries uh, represented here at some point. Um, Every single state, without a doubt. Um, Every color, age, uh, religion you could imagine. Uh, It's a very diverse group, and it's more because people are really curious. And it's also a testament to the fact that the cannabis user is as diverse as the alcohol user. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, that's something I've always been interested in. And one of the reasons I've been trying to talk to people on this show about it is... I think most people, if they're not involved or they don't live here, have a very specific perception of what a cannabis user looks like. And when I talk to people in the industry, you, Goldie, Jake Brown, they they all say, no, it's it's across the board, and you'd be very, very surprised. Yeah, uh, that that is the case. And I think that's why a state like Colorado and now Washington and Oregon are important is these are the first places that the world is getting an opportunity to really see this firsthand if they come here. And it's, again, it's one thing to see it on the news, to read it in a paper, to see it in a documentary, because those are always biased, no matter how unbiased they try to be. So to come here and experience it yourself is something different. And they can take that um, opinion of of the industry, take their perspective on it back to where they live and talk to their friends and family about it. And it's that kind of growth that happened organically here in Colorado that change perception about the industry here locally quickly because you know especially with medical to start once you're on to your grandma or or your lawyer or your doctor you found out was a cannabis patient and right. not only that they've been using cannabis for 20 years they were finally comfortable to come out of the closet to say so <laughs> right um, they really changed people's ideas about who was using cannabis sure and i think we're starting to see that on a larger national and international scale right now and it's as much as i hate the word becoming very normal yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Very normal. Yeah. That's, that's kind of a loaded word when, when you use it in that. T- uh, it could be kind of an ugly word. <laughs> yeah. It can be. Let's talk a little bit about sex pot comedy and how did sex pot comedy come into being? Yeah. So back to the, the notes about the Westward ad when, so sexy pizza was about three years old. Um, when, I really started to get uh, up, ramp up marketing efforts and was looking around. We put some ads in the onion. We did some local neighborhood papers. We, you know, did, I think, a lot of the things that other businesses look to to give themselves a little jump. And, and Westward was always there. They always, you know, we participated in a lot of their events. Right. And it seemed like a natural choice. So we put in a quarter page ad. I think we paid $900 uh, for that quarter page for one week. You know, what's their distribution? Over 100000 So I was like, yeah, we, we should be getting some, some coupons back. And I think it was like after two weeks we had got three coupons <laughs> and i was like there, there has to be a better way to spend money um i had started going to uh, a show called too much fun uh, that was run by the fine gentleman's yeah Club. it still is uh, over five years now up at the deer pile above city of city yeah yeah and had become friends with those guys and uh, sam talent and nathan lund came into my office and had asked if uh if i wanted to sponsor their show in both cannabis and uh, pizza <laughs> and uh, that's a hell of a like, deal if like, you're a comedian yeah. so let's do both of those let's give you a little money and let's do that uh, matt monroe with propaganda down at laney's clock tower uh, yeah. same thing they had both asked me in the same week and all of a sudden i found out that okay we're sponsoring two shows that probably have visibility in front of you know five six hundred people in any given month mm-hmm. uh, people that live in our neighborhood around these businesses that appreciate what we're doing yeah and i'm spending you know a, a quarter of the money or less i'm probably getting better engagement yeah. and that 
that model, that kind of thought process on spending our marketing dollars just kind of grew. And all of a sudden, you know, Sexbot today is sponsoring about 45 shows every month. and 45 you know, shows a month? Yeah, if you count the weeklies and, and, wow. and all of that. You know, not different shows, but as many right, right. occurrences of shows in now L.A., Denver, Chicago, and New York, kind of based on that same principle. So uh, as we kind of spread uh, cannabis and hopefully sexy pizza outside the state one day, um, would love to see that synergy continue because it is there and uh, it's, it's very natural. But yeah, it was really there as an alternative way to market. And then that bled into Birdie, uh, which kind of uh, yeah. moved beyond comedy and said, let's engage the entire art scene now and see, see how that does for our business. And it's done well. And we haven't put these print ads in. We've been very organic in our marketing and the businesses have continued to grow. That's so cool. I remember the first time I saw Birdie. It was given to me by Brandy Shigley. Mm-hmm. Love Brandy. Who, I love Brandy, too. She's been on my show twice. And then um, uh, there was an article in there from Jason Heller, who was also on the show. Yeah. And I'm like, whoa, this is like this is like a John of All Trades alumni issue. This is fantastic. <laughs> Yeah, it, it's been a tremendous project, and that that and Sexpot came from nothing. You know, I think the la- the last thing that kind of pinned down Sexpot as a thing uh, was we used to do these uh, cannabis consumption shows at Sexy Pizza South Pearl about mm. three years ago, and we would have uh, fine gents come down and and whoever was at Comedy Works that night come to us as like being the weird local show <laughs> that they that they could participate in, and and we would put up a, a drape in front of Sexy Pizza to cover all the windows and have everybody come through the back door and <laughs> consume cannabis and. And drink and eat pizza wow. uh, in there. Definitely not legal, um, <laughs> but but did that and people loved it. And I think that you know, one there was that synergy obviously that was playing off of. But two, it also goes to show that I think people were looking for a place to consume cannabis sure. that, that was a, a quote unquote normal environment that wasn't <laughs> them just sitting at home or them hiding from right. it. That this is something that they should enjoy socially and naturally and and be able to watch entertainment with and and that's what it's kind of grown into. So we've done a lot of those cannabis consumption shows at Oriental on a lot larger scale mm. and uh, just proven as something that people wanted and has fed into the discussion of the public consumption here in Denver, uh, which I led uh, helped led lead that initiative that got put on on the ballot last year. We ended up pulling it. Um, Now we're letting the city try to figure it out because they've asked us to give them that that consideration, and and we have, but it doesn't look like they're going to get very far, so we're probably going to end up throwing it back on the ballot this fall. So Okay, so Citizens Initiative, are you... uh you have to go through all the signature gathering and that yeah, entire and process. Yeah, so the guy, the other guys that lead this, it's the Council on Responsible Cannabis Regulation, right. which I'm a founding council member for. It's led by Steve Fox, uh, who's an old marijuana policy project lobbyist who started Safer uh, with me. Okay, right, right, right. Um, so this is uh, you know secondhand nature to these guys, and sure. uh, we can we can get it on the ballot there in a second unless uh, if the city doesn't uh, come through with uh, what they said they would. Okay, what is the model that you will advocate for in terms of public consumption then? Uh, you know, something that's similar to alcohol consumption. I don't think we're going to have places off the bat that are going to be allowed to distribute and allow that consumption on site. So it's always going to be kind of a BYOC kind of thing. But I would advocate for uh, any venue, restaurant, bar um, that chooses to allow for combustion outside where cigarettes are consumed, that Mm -hmm. is out of public view, that is away from entrances, that is, uh, you know, going to uh, 100% keep it away from uh, children. Uh, I would advocate for that. I would also advocate for uh, vaporization or edible 
variables uh, and areas uh, to use those inside designated okay. away from, uh, you know, other areas uh, where people are eating and drinking and things like that. If they don't want to be around it, they shouldn't have to. Um, any venue owner, bar owner, restaurant, whoever should be allowed to disallow this anywhere on their premises if they choose right. to. Uh, and then there should probably be an allowance for cannabis clubs, uh, something where if everybody knows that they're going there to consume cannabis and that's the point of it and everybody's okay with that, right. they should be allowed to do so as long as there are people there that are ensuring uh, public safety by making sure people don't consume too much. Right. Okay. So, yeah, very similar to alcohol in terms of there are there are regulations, there are opt-ins, there are there, there's there's a framework around which you can do it sort of uh, more similar to alcohol than to cigarettes. Yeah, and this would be something that would be uh, deferred to the local municipalities. So, sure. um, you know, we're, we're pushing for a state initiative as well. And if that happens, you know, if Aurora doesn't want to allow it, they don't have to allow it. Um, hopefully it would be through voter initiative sure. uh, as opposed to city councils, uh, kind of, because they're, they're definitely not in tune with uh, the citizens on a lot of issues. Um, but yeah, to give them the opt out uh, if they so choose to and, and just kind of build it organically. Let Denver be that, uh, that experimental breeding ground, uh, like it has been for cannabis in general right. uh, over the last couple years and, and do it for public consumption as well. It's not going to be perfect on the front end and no. it's going to change and, and revise itself over time to find something that works for all stakeholders. Um, but you got to start somewhere. Yeah, you got to try, right? And let's, there are some examples out there in, in other countries, the Netherlands and, and you know, Spain and Italy are talking about uh, doing these things. Alaska just uh, legalized uh, public consumption and they're working that into their model. So hmm. uh, a lot of people are talking about it. It's an issue that's not going away. Uh, why wouldn't Colorado uh, want to continue to be on the forefront of that discussion, continue to to be leaders in, in cannabis thought. Right, absolutely. You brought up something that I, that I want to touch on, and it was that the city council isn't always in tune with what the citizens want. Did that sort of mindset fuel your desire to run for city council uh, in 14? Was it 14 or 15? Uh, last year, yeah. Last year. <clears throat> yeah, I ran for uh, at-large, uh, failed miserably. Well, <laughs> yeah, got 12,000 votes, so... 12,000 people are on my side. Um, uh, I, and I, I don't mind telling you, I was one of them. <laughs> I thank you for that. <laughs> of course. Um, it, you know, it was it was kind of a last-minute thing. It started as a joke to run for mayor, um, to, <laughs> to speak to, to more cannabis issues. Okay. Uh, when it finally uh, got real, I, I realized how just ineffectual that would be. Um, right. When I looked at... Uh, city council and the holes in it and the fact that we had more seats up uh, last year than we've had in like a decade here in Denver uh, that there was uh, and there were a lot of other cannabis candidates um, even though I didn't want to be a cannabis candidate and of course got known as being one well sure um, uh, they had an opportunity to make a splash and at least uh, build a narrative around some of these issues that were being forgotten Denver growing as quickly as it has over the last couple of years a lot of it to do with cannabis and technology we, we've lost sight of affordable housing. We've lost sight of um, a lot of uh, consideration for the arts, uh, lower income, the support people of the city. And we're pushing them out uh, into the suburbs and out into these outer lying areas right. when why did people come to Denver in the first place? It's because of these people and their their contributions and, and, and what they mean to the city and the color that the city has. Uh, and then if as soon as you start, like, Filtering that out or uh, dispersing that, I just think I just think you lose what Denver is. So I, th I thought that that and public transportation and, and obviously the cannabis issues just weren't being talked about um, because the people at city council were really that out of touch. And when I looked at uh, their resumes in totality and the fact that I had more business experience and have more business right. experience than all of them combined, I mean that that's a huge statement in a city that has a budget the size of this. Yeah, and and I I don't know I just I think that there there needs to be at least an 
integration of some different thought, a thought that's a little bit more inclusive of everybody, um, a thought that isn't uh, run primarily through lobbying dollars and special interests like union groups and things like that. And if you look at where the money comes from with a lot of these candidates, that's exactly where they're getting their influence. So right. um, ultimately, I really wanted to raise a ruckus and raise a stink <laughs> and, and see if we could get some conversation around some of these issues, some excitement with, with some people that wouldn't normally vote, especially in a municipal election in May. I mean, you know, that's like <laughs> right. nobody, nobody votes in those. So I think to even get 12,000 was huge in my two-month campaign. But uh, the peak behind the curtain was very cool, was very real. I think I understood kind of the mechanics of the process uh, a little better. Um, I think that it, it will serve as a good foundation to do it again uh, someday if I have more time uh, to, right. to create a campaign, to not be my own campaign manager, to to help other people or to have other people help me raise money instead of doing it one-on-one and to, right. to treat it more like I think these other candidates that I think I could have a real shot. I would think so in May. Uh, someone from your team called us, and I might have been you. Who knows? <laughs> but uh, someone called me and my wife, and they asked if we were voting in the city council election. And we're both—I mean, we're both very civically involved, so we vote in every election. We go, yeah. And they asked who we were voting for, and we said you, and it was from your team, which was nice. But they asked us why. You guys were clearly gathering some intelligence. But I go, and and it was funny hearing you say it because I thought at the time we go. Uh, he's got creative entrepreneur skills. He's got a different way of thinking. And it's not that I, I hate the term outsider, like political outsider, like Donald Trump's a political outsider and he seems to be a total parasite. <laughs> and I, I'm huge, not a fan of Trump. But uh, the way I put it was, it seems like you could come up with some creative solutions for the issues that we face here in Denver rather than entrenched thinking based on your history and based on your resume. Because, I mean, we research every candidate and I go, holy shit, this is Kayvon. I've heard Adam Caton Holland talk about him. And then I think he endorsed you on his My Dining Room Table podcast. And I go, all right, perfect. And so it was that thinking that uh, that compelled me to vote for you. So I... I hope you do seriously consider it again. I think a lot of it's just about getting that visibility uh, over time. And I, you know, I may be uh, relatively well known here in, in the core of Denver, but if you look at all the outer lining areas, I'm not. Yeah, sure. Um, so there's there's a lot of work to be done there. Me running wasn't saying that I know everything and that I, I had all the answers because that was that would have been a new job for me. A new process it would have taken some time. No, and and to that's get an, fit in. that's an important distinction too because I don't want someone who has all the answers. Anyone who claims to have all the answers. I I mean, it, whether they're selling car parts or Jesus, you know, anyone who is that certain about their about the answers, no, that like you're trying to sell me something. I agree. It, it's more about like I go in with this approach. This is my philosophy. I don't know at this point. I don't know what I don't know, but here's my approach to solving that. Yep. Yeah, it's, it's about using critical thinking skills. It's about collaborating. It's about, yes, yeah, saying, uh, being honest when you don't understand something. Yeah. And I think just getting an infusion of perspectives that would have made them think differently probably could have allowed us to, yeah, find some uh, more creative solutions, some unique solutions that, you know, maybe they would have been more efficient. Maybe they would have uh, benefited more people. I don't know. Um, uh, time will tell if, if I get that opportunity. But, yeah, I think that that's something that's missing is just a different way of thinking. And whether it's the term outsider or, or whatever, right. they definitely need somebody that didn't grow up to be a politician uh, on city council. Right. At least one uh, just provide a different perspective. Sure. And it's not even necessarily to go in there and, you know. And to, to be rowdy and disrupt and, you know, cause I would argue the Tea Party has done that in our federal legislative structure. But, uh, it, yeah, it's, it's more like, hey guys, have you thought of this? Mm-hmm. And in your estimation, what is the Denver City Council mostly focused on where 
you, you know, you, you read off a list of issues, affordable housing and cannabis and all that, that seem to be slipping through the cracks. What are they focused on? I think that right now they're just grappling with the fact that Denver's growing quicker than anybody expected to and to, to build the infrastructure projects that are necessary to, to deal uh, with this appropriately, it takes time. You know, the light rail doesn't get planned and built overnight, and that's evidence. But now, all of a sudden, we're, we've grown 100,000 people in the metro every year, and we're needing or seeing the need for these this infrastructure to grow dramatically again uh, when we haven't planned for it. So, right. I, I think ultimately infrastructure, um, but also tourism and 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 making big money corporations happy. When you look at what we're doing with homeless downtown, the fact that we're pushing these people out, that we've made homelessness illegal, mm. like we've made uh, unfortunateness illegal in mm. Denver, um, is very sad. And right. they're, they're concerned, in my opinion, more with the perception of Denver than the actual guts and how it's operated in the, the quality of life that its citizens have. Mm. And I think that's extremely unfortunate. Now, is it, you know, is it meant in that with that ill intent? I, I don't I don't think so. I think a lot of this, the folks on city council are actually very good people, um, but they're being driven by these forces that are larger than they are. And this, this is a city that's uh, got a strong mayor. It's not the city council that runs the city. It's right. the mayor. And I think the view that uh, these council people have is primarily based on what mayor Hancock believes should happen. And that's primarily driven by corporate interests and money mm. and tourism and, uh, and not on the residents of Denver. Interesting on the homeless issue. What would be the fix in your estimation? Because if we're driving these people out and we're criminalizing homelessness, how do you change that? How do you make it better? One of the questions they asked, uh, one of the forums I participated in, was whether I would support the expansion of a jail that had just been built two years ago. <laughs> and okay, uh, I, I said I was the only candidate that said no. Huh. And. It, it costs so much money to, to house and bed people and incarcerate people in jail. You could spend a fraction of that in educating people about drug use to, to treat drug use as a public health issue, which is ultimately what leads to a lot of homelessness. To provide beds uh, in a homeless shelter is, is a hell of a lot cheaper than providing beds in a, in a jail. And to, to why, just, why is that? Do you know? Well, I, I, mo I just like uh, running a war is, is is increasingly expensive. I mean, a lot of it's becoming privatized. Okay. Uh, there's there's uh, expensive contracts in place. There's usually if you have people providing beds for the homeless uh, population, it's because they're doing it out of the goodness of their heart and not to make a buck. Okay. Prisons are run to make money. They're there to carry budgets. They're there, they're there to employ people. Mm. Um, that's not the mission of a homeless shelter. But, you know, there's, uh, there's countries like Portugal that decriminalized all drugs and all of a sudden uh, drug use is the number 19 concern in the country <laughs> when it was two the year before. Because we're finding that if you spend time in, and money on um, public health and education, on treatment, on counseling, on rehabilitation as opposed to incarceration, right. that not only do you spend far less money in doing that, you have a much higher success rate in, uh, of integrating these people back into society and making them contributing members again. And mm. just it. It may not be something that we can do here in Denver locally dramatically, but I think there are fixes and leniencies that we can tie to drug use that will ultimately reduce that reduces that prison population a great deal, um, keeps people from being homeless because now when they get out of jail, they don't have that on their record, and maybe right. they can go get a job and keep them out of that situation. It's about empowering people, and right now we don't do that. We tell people what they should and should not do and can and cannot do, even if what they do affects nobody else. And I think that's the, the unfortunateness of our drug laws primarily, which which is leading to a lot of these issues. Is that a byproduct, do you think, or maybe a symptom of a, our history as sort of a Puritan culture? 
I mean, is that something that, w- that we're struggling against all the time? Yeah, you know, I think it started as this re- religious uh, war, you know, it's it's about money. I mean, it's all about money. It's all about maintaining budgets. And the the thing that scares them about cannabis, and by them I mean governments in general, is the fact that they are going to lose significant budgets uh, in in law enforcement in prison. They're mm-hmm. looking at all those jobs go away. Uh, they're looking how how do we replace these jobs? Um, it, we're talking millions and millions of people that are uh, employed by law enforcement in, in mm-hmm. these prisons. All for uh, housing people that are using, you know, substances that aren't hurting anybody else. Um, we're fueling cartels. Uh, we're, yeah, we're, 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 we're just like cannabis. You know, now we have a $5.6 billion economy here in the United States for cannabis. That's $5.6 billion less that's uh, in cartels' hands right now. Right. You know, you, you look at what Mexico, uh, Mexican cartels are doing. They're moving into, like, mining and transportation and, <laughs> and kind of moving towards what the mob uh, did in Chicago when they got started getting right. out of drugs a little bit. We, we can't empower these cartels. We can't empower the governments and this, and this, this continues. That, it, it, it started, I think, as a Puritan thing, but it's moved into predominantly money mm-hmm. and maintaining budgets and a political talking point uh, above uh, a public health issue, which it should be. When you talk about Portugal decriminalizing all drugs, and, and you said in terms of public opinion, it was way down on the list of things people were concerned about. What were the repercussions of doing that? Um, was there anything negative that occurred by decriminalizing all drugs? Uh, from what I've heard, no. And, you know, it's not to say that, um, you know, you can have a pound of cannabis. You right. can have a couple grams. You know, it's still, right. it's still kept illegal, that large... Uh, that large scale ownership, that distribution, um, the, the kind of gang related activity that surrounds drugs, all that's still very much illegal there. But mm. it's taking somebody that is doing nothing but using it themselves. Right. Okay. Um, just taking that out of the mix. And no, I, I, from what I understand, uh, socially, economically, it's done nothing but improve that country. Hmm. But, you know, time will tell. It's only been a few years. But there are more states following suit. Uh, Mexico just decriminalized uh, a lot of drugs uh, wow. on, on a very small level. Uh, Canada's moving in that direction. A lot of European countries are moving in that direction. Asia's probably going to be the last. Uh, South America, Central America, a lot of those countries are now decriminalizing all drugs because they're seeing the power that it's providing uh, to these illegal entities and these cartels. That's fascinating to me. What does a typical day look like for you? Because you you seem like you're spread all over hell. And what's been fun is, I mean, we've talked about a lot of issues here. And there's a lot going on. And you clearly have an an advocacy bone within you where you want to advocate on behalf of, I would call it the, the common good and the greater good. But you still have businesses to run, right? So what does a typical day look like for you? I would say I usually wake up. Uh, about six, uh, a little earlier sometimes. Um, kind of meander around my house and drink a lot of coffee in the morning. Um, yeah. <laughs> you know, try to get some of my domestic stuff done. Sure. Uh, answer some emails. Try to get in the office around seven thirty, um, an hour and a half before most everybody else does, so I can have some quiet work time. Actually, get some things done because as soon as I get here and everybody else is, uh, yeah. I get inundated with questions. Um, but it's it's meetings, it's talking, and that I think has been one of the the biggest hurdles that I've had to face over the last couple of years is trusting other people to get a lot of the work product done, the deliverables done, um, and trust that they're going to get done well enough to make me happy and to make our clients happy because I'm, I'm just, I'm proud of how I do things and how I think. And again, it may not be perfect or right all the time, but it, it creates the color for our business and our narrative and who we are. And to, it takes a while to instill that in somebody else and to trust that they're going to relay that um, properly 
So uh, mainly just talking, uh, a lot of meetings over the phone and in person, a lot of, again, resource management, right. you know, um, trying to empower people, constantly hiring people, um, constantly firing people, unfortunately, but it, it's all over the place. I travel a lot. I flew 84 times last year. Yikes. Um, so trying to, yeah, it's awful. Um, <laughs> trying to get in the habit of, you know, being efficient while working on planes and, and oh, trying God. to make sure that I get my proper sleep and that I do exercise and that I eat well. And, and they're just, they're these constant things that weigh on my mind, um, that I'm trying to get better at, but uh, it's, it's just trying to get better and trying to engage with people that are going to make my life easier and, and hopefully I can make their life easier. Um, but I, I think that that starts with having people that are, you know, like you said, I have an advocacy bone in my, my body. I think everybody that I work with does all my business partners do. And right. it's about finding the right people uh, with the right intent on the front end. And that's why I'm allowed to do what I do. People look at something and they say, oh, wow, that's great. You're so lucky. I'm like, well, yeah, I also worked my ass off <laughs> endlessly for, for years to get this. Right. You know, pe- people ask, how, how do you get so much done? I go, well, when you're eating, when you're walking your dog, when you're out with your friends and family, when you're out to dinner, when you're jogging, when you're up in the mountains having fun, I'm working. Yeah. You know, and that's the difference. And I'm not saying that everybody should do that. It's not for everyone. <laughs> no. And I wouldn't want everybody to do that. And not, I'm not saying that I don't want more of a social life, but um, right now in this time and place, so it seems like the right thing to do. And, and I'm just, I'm happy working to the bone, but also conscious of my health as I'm getting a little older sure. and understanding that it's not going to go on like that forever. Um, so, you know, we, I think before this got started, we were talking about how last year was kind of the, uh, the explosion of the businesses and, and, and when a lot of them kind of got their firm footing and, and started to get some visibility. And now it's time to consolidate my efforts, I think, and start to trust other people more to empower more people to, sure. to take the reins on these businesses so I can focus on myself and, and some of these more advocate projects that I'm working on. Right. And when you're working, it's pretty much, I mean, you say it's all the time. For me, I know that when I started working for myself, it reminded me more of when I was in grad school where, I was working more mm, – I was working maybe the same like aggregate number of hours, but they were spread out and they were, like, they were different. One thing that frustrated me so much in my corporate job was – and some people love this – was going in at this time, leaving at this time, and that whole time, like that's what you have to be doing. I don't function that way. My brain doesn't work very well like that. Mm-hmm. And when you're in a creative industry as – when you're an entrepreneur, you were doing nothing but sort of trying to be creative about how you're going to get more money in through the door and, and support not only your business, but your people who work for you and on and on. I like to leave as wide a berth for that as possible. And that doesn't always happen between eight and five. I know your workday is, is fairly atypical, but uh, are you, you know, are you doing stuff at night on the weekends? Is it, is it a non-traditional schedule for you? Yeah. Seven days a week, uh, probably 12 hours a day I work. Um, or more. Um, but so we're talking like 80, 90, uh, hours a week. I'd say, yeah, for the last, uh, at least eight years. Jeez. Um, <laughs> um, so you can see why I'd, I'd like to l- uh, lighten that burden a little bit. Um, <laughs> but at the same time, you know, do you ever burn out with that though? I've had a couple moments of intense, uh, frustration and, and almost breakdown. Yeah. I, you know, I, I think if I didn't, I wouldn't be human. Um, <laughs> but it's it's hard to keep up that level of intensity for that long. Uh, what I mean, how do you, what do you do to recharge? How do you wind down? You know, I don't know. I <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't know that I do wind down. Um, I think cannabis has helped a lot. So you know, back to what you were saying about having these 
blocks and periods of time. I, I agree entirely. And I, it's important for me that if I'm going to put in this intense effort on this deliverable, this technical writing or whatever yeah. uh, for this hour, that I do have some reprieve when that's done. Sure. Um, yeah. That I can go, you know, communicate on a creative project with someone or, or do something like that. Something it's got, a little lighter. Yeah. It's got to be this collage of efforts and collage of interests and, and, and things that I'm doing to keep me sane. Um, if I'm, if I'm working on anything for eight hours in a row, I burn out. Yeah, sure. I think it's just the diversity and in, in what I'm doing and who I'm working with that allows me to maintain my sanity uh, more than anything. Um, but, I, you know, it's important to, to remember that if you're, I think if you're a truly dedicated entrepreneur that you love what you do and that, that bleeds into everything that you do. So this has become not just my business, but my social life and, and my love right. life. Most of the, most of the, <laughs> the women that I meet um, in my life, I meet through my endeavors and, and it's all encompassing. It's just who I am. So even though that 12 hours of work is there and I'm, I'm putting an effort and I'm collaborating, a lot of it's pretty fun and a lot of <laughs> right, it's exciting yeah. and, and, and progressive and, and keeps, keeps me recharged just because it's something different and new. No. And I mean, that makes sense. And if you were going to work for yourself, you really need to adopt that model. And it's, it's one I've found works really well for me. I, you know, the day of the Broncos parade, I knew downtown was going to be just a total mess. And so I avoided it and I ended up not working that afternoon and I took my daughter to the museum. And it was a Tuesday afternoon, and I thought, if I were my corporate job, I couldn't do this at all. And so I got to enjoy the day with her. No one was there. So it was like I felt like I was like this rich guy who rented out the museum just for me and her. And then after I put her to bed, I ended up working from like 7 to 11 that night. And I thought, man, this is great. Like, what a great life. Like, where I get to go out in the middle of the day and just enjoy time with my, you know, 16-month-old daughter. And then I can come home and just work my ass off as I need to. Yeah, it's 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 wonderful to have that flexibility. And I think that uh, productivity in this country would increase dramatically if we were able to live a life like that. Right. I think with new, when you look at some of the big corporations that are influencers in this country, like Google, that do have kind of non-traditional uh, ways of running yeah. their business. You know, would I want to run like Google? No, not necessarily. But um, they want to do things differently because they understand that just because we've done something for the last 80 years doesn't make it appropriate or right uh, for how we live today. And, and when you look at needing to get more towards a local economy, which is another thing that I really wanted to push for in my city council run, you, you, you can be more flexible, you, you know, with the Internet and just, I think, teaching people entrepreneurship. Uh, we can have that local economy that is yeah. more flexible and conducive to people being happy and doing what they love. And, and I think that society in general is moving more in that direction. So I look forward to providing an example as much as I can for others to get engaged and to, to kind of find their own path and success. Yeah. Absolutely. That's awesome. What keeps you up at night mm -hmm. in terms of everything you have going on or as you look forward, what keeps you up at night? I think a fear of falling behind, um, <laughs> not, not just in my work. Cause I think that's perpetual. Sure. <laughs> um, I'm always behind on my work, but I, I think just falling behind and what people want and who, you know, I, I don't, I don't even pretend to know what people want now necessarily, but I think I'm connected enough and I have enough people that do around me that, that I feel in tune, uh, that I feel up to speed, but I, I worry about getting too stretched that I, that I'm just not, I'm not up to speed anymore, that yeah. I'm not, I'm not honest with what's going on and what I should be doing to modify what I'm doing to, to right. continue to be successful. Yeah, no, that makes good sense. It's, it's similar to my fear, which is I don't ever want to have rigidity of thinking. Yep. And, you know, you, you see people, especially as they get older 
and and I always say this to people I consult with because I'm a communications consultant. I say, if your answer for doing anything is this is the way we've always done it, you need a new reason. Yeah. Like, and and it may be very well that we should continue doing it this way, but if that's the reason, that's a terrible reason. Yep, I right? agree. And we need to we need to be thinking. So, I'm always cognizant of I'm like, am I just doing this because I've always done it that way, or, and and it it terrifies me, but it <laughs> it pushes me to get better. So. Yeah, I, I I guess uh you know it's maybe a little selfish. I'm I'm kind of fearful of not being known as somebody that's a progressive, you know, right. um to to get tired to to become the thing that I kind of chide against which is that complacency and that stagnation uh in in corporation and culture and philanthropy and anything. I think right. you know there's there's a reason a lot of nonprofits are uh, rather ineffectual yeah. and 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 burden too much in overhead than actually getting the work done. Um, it's because they do think in that way that is tired and old and dated. Right. And uh, I don't know. I, I'm just I'm excited for a place like Denver because I think it has a lot of people that that start to see that and and try to do something different on a very small scale that that uh, ends up growing large because we have a ton of entrepreneurial spirit here that's grown into some pretty amazing companies. Yeah, 100. percent As you look forward, what's next for you? What what have you not done that you want to sell a business? <laughs> I think when you know when I started all these, you, you think along the way that at least one of them is going to fail, and, and none of them have yet, okay. and that's that's created part of the burden. Um, <laughs> sure. So of the problems to have, though, I would argue that's one of the better ones you could have. Yes. <laughs> yes. Um, but yeah, I would I would love to to sell one of my businesses um, this year. Um, I, I already have one in mind uh, that's kind of in the process, which I can't speak to now. Of course not. Um, but I hope to use that to fuel uh, Sexpot and Birdie. Um, Sexpot is going to continue to grow. We have two shows at South by Southwest here in a couple weeks. Oh, that's so awesome. Uh, we had one last year, you know, doing the, uh, an East Coast tour um, this spring, uh, you know, getting more engaged in festivals and TV pitches. We're doing a TV pitch with Ben Cronenberg and, and working with the guys that developed At Midnight and, nice. and trying to work on some 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 bigger things than we're doing than just sponsoring the grassroots shows here. And, and th that all takes money to fuel uh, money that I don't necessarily have because I lose so much on Saxpot uh, every month still right now. Oh, really? Yeah. Just being a, you know, being such a grassroots supporter, um, having so much money go to artists, using it as, and, and again, it's not a loss. It's a marketing expense for my businesses, but it's, it's not creating sure. revenue yet. We wanted to get the impressions and get the visibility, um, before we actually started selling it. So that's coming down the pipe. Um, but we, I think we need money to fuel some of the larger projects that are going to get us the proper visibility with the right people. Uh, so that, and then taking birdie into Los Angeles, uh, this year is something uh, we have aspirations to do. So yeah, me just focusing more on advocacy, being known for that, not only in cannabis, but in, in civic rights and, uh, and perpetuating art more, I think is, is really my goal going forward and what I want to do and, and what that looks like. I have no clue and I never know what anything I do is going to look like. And I right. think that's part of the fun of it. Well, yeah, you, you do it because you want to, not because you have some sort of end goal in mind. Yeah, it, it feels good. And if it doesn't, I don't want to, I don't want to say that I'm going to be here after a certain period of time because I don't want the expectation to be that if I don't hit that, that I'm not successful. Yeah. I don't want my decisions along the way to guide me directly to that goal if something else feels better. That makes sense. And that's a very Zen approach. 
which is not always easy to do when you're running a business. No, it's not. And I've made um, good and bad decisions <laughs> with that mindset, and uh, of course, yeah. and have uh, you know aligned with people because of it, and pissed off a lot of people because of it. But um, I think that's what's unique about what we're doing is we're building a culture. Um, we're building something that's unique in ours, and some people aren't going to be okay with it, and some people are just going to embrace it fully. But it's it's continually getting people to embrace it uh, that's going to continue to help it grow and allow us to either be successful or flounder. Well, I'll tell you what. I know, uh, I mean, you told us how much you have going on all the time. So uh, I've taken an hour of your time. That's more than enough. Before we get out of here, I, I, I do uh, I do plugs at the end. So plug whatever you want. Uh, <laughs> you have plenty to draw from. But uh, where can people find out more about you? Where can people get involved in your businesses? Anything you want to plug, do it. Sure. Uh, yeah, I try to push as many people as I can to sexpotcomedy.com. I really want that to be a, a, a great place for, for content, uh, for unique content, for local content. We've got our 24-7 radio on there. Uh, and then Birdie Magazine, uh, which we're going to expand uh, readership quite a bit. Uh, it's already up in Boulder this year. Um, so nice. go to your quirky coffee shops and bookstores, and uh, you'll probably be able to find a copy of it there. That's awesome. Well, Kayvon, I'll tell you what, this was an enormously insightful and illuminating and just plain enjoyable chat. It was, it was a pleasure getting to hear your story and hearing about sort of your view of the world and everything you're working on. So I just got to tell you, continued success to you, man. Thank you. Appreciate the time. And that wraps up episode 91 of the John of All Trades podcast. Thank you to Kayvon Kalifari for taking some time, sitting down with me and just rapping a little bit about being an entrepreneur. That type of conversation energizes me, where we're talking about issues, where we're talking about real stuff, enacting change, bettering our city. God bless you, sir. May you have all the success in the world. Anything I can do to help, I'm happy to do it. So check out all of Kayvon's work on the John of All Trades website, J-O-N of all trades dot U-S. If you want this episode and any episode downloaded straight to your listening device, check us out on iTunes. We're also available on Stitcher. Maybe you like online radio streaming. Those are two great ways to enjoy the John of All Trades podcast. And hey, if you're looking for more content, we are on four of the big social networks. Big Four, Facebook, Twitter, Snapchat, and Pinterest. The username is the same for all of them. Just search for J-O-A-T-Pod. to find all sorts of great content. Episode previews are exclusive to Facebook. Silliness is confined to Twitter. Snapchat I'm still figuring out. And Pinterest has all the weird shit in the world that you love. So, J-O-A-T pod on all the social networks. We're off next week. There's no episode coming up, but we'll be back in two weeks. We've got a good one planned. And until I see you then, say goodnight, Gracie. That's good, Johnny.